Will you please welcome a friend of us all, Mr. Ian Clayton. Okay. And this is your third time now, John, isn't it? It is. Yeah, John, yeah. John's been, we did Solid Air. Um, and what else did we do? Five Leaves Nick, Left. Five Leaves five Left, leaves yeah. Um, a man who's too modest, it's ridiculous, but here he is, the truly wonderful John Wood. We were just, we were just saying that uh, if you were to buy a mint first edition copy of, of this Pink Moon album, you'd need at least 1,400 quid now. According to Discogs this morning, that was. I think there's one on there for 700 quid, but it's, it, it's in need of care and attention, it said. So it just shows you how daft these prices go for these, these albums. And John's just told me, you sold yours, didn't you? Yeah, I just got rid of all my vinyl for 500 quid. <laughs> Three years ago. And um, anyway, there you go. Can so you imagine? What, yeah, can you imagine what what diamonds and gems were in that collection? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, there you go. We we're going to talk about this album, John, but you've already mentioned it to me, and I thought it as well, that there's not a right lot to say about a 27-minute album. Well, no, not, as I've said to a few people who asked about it and asked for interviews and things, uh, we recorded it in two sessions of about three hours each. Uh, the record lasts under half an hour. It's all Nick on his own. And much else you can say about it, really. I think the... <laughs> I think the circumstances... I'll be off. I think the circumstances are, are interesting in themselves. I've read somewhere... I read a really nice interview with you, with a, I think in an American magazine, where they were talking about hi-fi and all, all sorts of things, but they got on to Nick Drake. And Nick Drake was the... Oh, he only trusted you, John, to make to produce this third album. For some reason or other, um, I mean, Nick was always very aware of what he wanted to do in the studio. And, um, people think he was shy and retiring, but he wasn't very shy and retiring in his professional life at all, actually. And I never knew this at the time, but he gave an interview to... I think it was a journalist from NME. Jerry, Jerry Gilbert. Jerry Gilbert, that's yeah. it, yeah. And in the Jerry Gilbert interview, uh, he said he was just going to make the next record on his own with me. And that was two years before we made it. So he'd already made his mind up that that was the way he was going to do it. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, Nick was just somebody... I suppose was it, I found him very easy to get along with. He was he knew what he was doing. You know, he obviously was quite happy with working with me. So we and and then it developed a bit of a friendship. Um, on his first album, he was still at Cambridge, and uh, in those days I was living in Suffolk, and uh, I used to drive him back to Cambridge sometimes, give him a white white knuckle ride back to. <laughs> after the sessions. Anyway, I suppose I got to know him quite well. And 
after this second album, after um, Brighter Later, he'd come and stay at the house a few times, suddenly turn up out of the blue. Um, and so, I mean, I'd, I never really sort of got any handle on what he was going to do when he wanted to re-record, but just suddenly the phone rings and he said he wanted to get back in the studio. And so, Sound Technics was a very busy studio and people didn't book studios by the week or even the day. People used to book it by sort of three or four hour slots or five hour slots and so the only time I could get in was after the evening slot had finished at 11 o'clock and uh, so that's when we did it and you know, did, I wasn't going to... It was always great fun to record Nick so it wasn't going to hang about, you know, if we was going to get the chance we just... So that, and that's why it was done late at night. So that dispels all the myth and nonsense about all that, because it was, you know, it was very straight ahead. If anybody knows how to change Wikipedia entries, <laughs> you can you can say, well, last night I heard the man who produced this album say it's all bollocks about <laughs> late night recording sessions and stuff and the romanticism of the night. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that was. <laughs> His two previous albums that you'd done with him, it, they were string laden. The, the, Robert Kirby did the, the string arrangements. Joe Boyd was involved a, a, as well. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly on the third one, it wants to be, at Nick's request, all stripped out, all stripped back, bare, just him and his guitar. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the first album when Robert got involved, um, that was that, 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 that was a, an instance of Nick's intransigence because uh, Joe's original idea was to make an album, I think, make an album a bit like... Um, who was that American? Apple, Apple recorded? Um, James Taylor. James Taylor, yeah. yeah. That's him. So they were thinking keep, about just keep feeding them out. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he's going to. He obviously saw that as a template, and I mean, I was, you know, I saw Judy Collins' album that we'd made at Sound Techniques two years earlier as a template, but that's another story. Um, anyway, he gets this arranger who'd been working on the uh, James Taylor stuff. Hewson, Richard Hewson. Yeah. And, you know, we start... and We'd already recorded sort of just acoustic guitar stuff with Nick for an afternoon or something. Really. Turned in his immaculate performances, which one day you'll hear, I expect, if they ever get their anniversary box set out for five leaves left. Um, and anyway... <clears throat> so... We start, and I've, whatever, I've forgotten what the line-up was, but it just, I can't get any handle on it. I mean, normally, when you're mixing and recording, you can get some, you know, there's something you can latch on to, there's some handle you can get to sort of make, make it sit in a way that it'll hang together and have a bit of an acoustic picture. And I couldn't do it. I could, just didn't, none of it seemed to make any sense. And it wasn't making much sense to Nick either, and Nick got crosser and crosser as <laughs> <laughs> the three-hour session went on. Um, by the end of the session, um, he just uh, <coughs> said he thought it was awful. And 
he got this friend at Cambridge he'd worked with in the past and he thought he could do a much better job. And that was Robert Kirby. So out of that first record, the, the, the strings and the feeling of the arrangements pretty much was, uh, well, I guess what, two-thirds of it nearly was on the basis of what he and Robert had done in their days at Cambridge when they used to go out doing May balls and things. So, mm-hmm. so that was, that's... And then when we came to do um, Brighter Later, uh, he still wanted strings on some of it, and obviously we used Robert Kirby. Mm-hmm. And the interesting one is that Robert, Ker- Robert Kirby would not do Riverman because it was 5-4 and he didn't think he could do it. And uh, so we were tossing around names and I said to Nick, well, what do you want it to sound like? And he sort of, sort of French, Ravel, Debussy sort of feel. And so I suggested Harry Robinson, who I'd worked with, whose biggest claim to fame. In the 50s, he'd had a hit record called Hootsmon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time I was working with him, he was uh, he was doing hammer pictures and bits and pieces and film stuff. Anyway, and he he just turned up and did it, and it was great. But uh, I don't know where we got talking about strings on it. You know. Because his third album, he, he wanted to do away with all that stuff. And well, he wouldn't he wouldn't do away with everything. I mean, mm. that and that I didn't realise that. I, I thought that he just decided that he was going to put down vocal and guitar and then worry about everything else afterwards. And after the second song, I said, you know, should we be getting hold of Danny? And he said, no, I don't want anybody else. That's it. It's just going to be me. And that was it. And, and the tone of the songs changes a lot. Yeah. People um, talk about the third album being much darker, starker, darker, more depressing than, than the other. Uh, well, if you think about the other, the others, the first two, the subjects are possibly much more observational. Pink Moon is definitely a very personal album. Um, and I think the second title we did was Parasite. And I think at that point I got, got the message, mm. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's quite a dark song. So, yeah, he very much changed his focus of you know, what he was writing about. He did come back to you one more time, though, John, didn't he, the following year and, and recorded some more uh, songs? Yeah. But, uh, yes, he, well, he decided he wanted to get back in the studio. And so, yeah, we had an afternoon, I think it was an afternoon, we only one afternoon, and we didn't really get anything much done. Um, it, and he, unusually for Nick, he, he actually put down tracks you know, because up until that time, every Nick Drake record he played the guitar and sang at the same time, no mm. messing. Um, usually with the rhythm section on the first album with the whole orchestra. You know. um, so, uh, <laughs> what did you ask me? Sorry. Mine's the fact that he he came back the following year. Oh yes, yes when he returned. His, yes, yeah, when he returned. Yeah, when he yeah. returned, what yeah. happened was that, um, as I say, he yes, he just put down some tracks and hadn't got any lyrics, and uh, so we sort of 
abandoned it. And then, I don't know, about three months later, I think Joe, Joe Boyd was in London in his new, with his new hat on, which was working for Warner Brothers Films. Um, and, uh, you know, I used to get, well, I used to see Joe all the time. I was, I was still working for Joe when he went to America. Yeah. Um, you know, he rang up and said, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, told him about Nick a few months previously. And he immediately rang up Nick and got him back in, and sort of pressured him back in again. And we did five, four or five songs, which Nick never wanted released. Black Dog was one of them. One of which is Black Dog, yeah. Hanging on a Star, Toe the Line, anyone, can't remember more. And he never wanted them released. And uh, after his death, <laughs> I did actually tell a white lie to Island Records and said that multi tracks didn't exist. They were actually in my loft at the time. Yeah. And because uh, I knew they were, you know, I never wanted to see them go out. And they net the, and, and what rather. Um, sort of upset the apple card about it, it was um, after Joe Boyd left Warner Brothers he had a label <clears throat> in America called Hannibal and they used to and basically the foundation of his label was all the artists he worked with in Britain with Witch Season so inevitably put out all the Nick Drake records. And when it got to Pink Moon, of course, everybody you know, throws their hands up in grief. It only lasts 28 minutes or whatever it is, or 22 minutes. I don't even, don't even think it's 28. I think it's, oh. Anyway. And so somehow he got hold of... And I must have given Ireland a, a seven-and-a-half Ips copy, or a rough mix copy or something. Or maybe even Nick gave one, I don't know. But that became the source to bulk out the back end of the American release mm. of Pink Moon, mm. Mm. which uh, caused a great deal of aggravation with me, I can tell you, but never mind. And then the we won't bother about that now. <laughs> it was Hannibal as well, I think, who put out that box set, that fruit tree box set, wasn't it? Uh, could have been, yeah. yeah could have I been. think, yeah. yeah. I mean, by that time. But anyway, that, that, that's how... The, otherwise... In my, in my book, those titles should never have seen the light of day. But when they did see the light of day, then, you know, we did, you know, I did for, you know, some, some box set or something, you know, sit down and mix them properly so, so they got done properly and weren't just off a rough mix that was chucked out. People, I mean, this, this, this popular consensus, this image that we're presented of... of Nick Drake is of this shy, nervous, perhaps poetic young man, full of a, a little bit of self-doubt, perhaps full of a kind of winsome almost way. Is that what you saw? Yeah, I mean, he, he became a mate of yours. Did you see all that stuff? No, I don't, wouldn't. I don't know if it's a mate or not. But I mean, the self self-doubt thing. I, I mean, I don't think that. I've worked with a lot of artists who have self self doubt. Not many who didn't, you know. Um, and so, certainly, what he, you know, he was a very positive sides to his character in, in some ways, and certainly the way he wanted his 
music to be, when it wanted to sound, the people he wanted to play on it, the performances he did. I mean, he was very positive about that all the time. Um, and would say so. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a lot of, a lot of even on the first album, he's, he's what, 19 or 20 or something. I mean, most people in that situation wouldn't be standing up and arguing with mm. <laughs> the, the, the producer. But he did, did he? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, particularly over the you know, this first session. Yeah. And you as well, who were known for your well, own yeah, opinions. Yeah, yeah, I'm known for having an opinion, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably cost me a few things in my time. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But anyway... But no, but he, I, was, I, I, he was shy, though, wasn't he? Because he, he, well, he struggled he, he, with he, performing. Yes, I, th- I, I, I just think he wasn't used to it. I mean, he, yeah. he came from a very, very privileged background, and his musical experiences up, you know, up until I suppose he got to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, I suppose he played a bit at Marlborough, but, you know, I mean, the family used to sit around and play hide and trios and things, and his aunt and his mother, because his mother played piano. So I don't think he's... I don't think he ever saw music, from, particularly from a performance point of view, probably. Mm. I, don't, I don't think... I've heard, I mean, his, I've heard his mother's recordings. David oh, Sully's great. put his mother's... Yeah. Box set out a couple of years ago, and they're, they're nice things. Well, she was lovely lady, his mum. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I heard a story, John, that that he, Michael Chapman, I think, tells this story about he, he, he was booked to play at the the folk club at the Aworth Arms in Hull, and he they were traditional folky yeah, people, yeah. and they they but they were talking and carousing and drinking beer while he was trying to sing his his gentle songs and in the end he came outside and he, he was crying on the pavement outside the pub. Well, I've, I've not heard that story but I've certainly there was a story <clears throat> that whether it reduced him to tears or not but I think and that was probably the end of them getting him out to perform even he got booked into some sort of working men's club somewhere yeah. in the north and and of course that you know just went I think because he, as a performer, I think he just expected people to sit still and shut up and listen. And obviously, you know, mm. when you're the sort of gigs that he would have been getting booked into, you know, at the beginning of a career like that, you're not going to get that. Mm. Well, certainly not in those days, anyway. How did you rate him? As a musician, Johnny, I mean, you've worked with all the greats of the folk movement, folk rock movement, but... Well, first of all, I'd, I'd get this... Let's, let's forget about this bloody folk term, you know, yeah. folk music nonsense. I mean, Nick Drake was a very consummate un- musician, and he understood... Not only did he understand... Could he, could he play, but he understood a lot... He understood a lot more about musical structure than a lot of people who would have been his contemporaries. Um, and you know, and that was because he could play piano. He played sax. He played uh, clarinet. You know, um, so well, musically, I think he's probably in the genre, if you like, of singer-songwriters that I've worked with. But I will not use the word 
certain folk, because it really gets up my nose. Um, uh, I would say it would probably he would be in the most literally musical of the lot. There you go. Yeah. Well, we can't bring you all the way from the far north of Scotland without asking a little bit of your history. I was I was looking at when sound tech when you started sound technique studios. It's nearly sixty years ago, John. Yeah, I suppose it probably is. God help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. When we sat down, I said, "Which is your best ear? Which for what side do you want to sit?" He said, "I hope they're still blo- both bloody work, but <laughs> I'm still working." Um, so, so sound techniques. It's a former dairy. Yeah. In Chelsea. Okay. Yeah, so it was a former dairy in Chelsea. But um, the history... Trying to do a brief potted history. I started out my career working for Decca Records. That's the first time I ever had a job in the industry. And ended up as a refugee from something else, like just about half the people who did end up in recording as recording engineers in those days we'd all been doing something else you know. and you know, there was a guy who's been a chemical engineer a bloke I worked with worked on rocket science and, I mean all, all sorts of bizarre things a lot of people who worked in the war and electronics and stuff anyway so I started there and um, uh, foolishly um, changed Follow, followed some money and shouldn't have done Anyway, finally ended up at the studio, which was like an independent jobbing studio in Bond Street, of all places. And it was a split business, and the one business made... Uh, it was a recording studio, and the other was, was a record company, and the record company was called Oriel. And there... And, and when I was there, I ran a vinyl... state-of-the-art vinyl mastering set-up which was quite new technology in those days. Um, anyway, and I didn't, was not remotely interested in popular music in particular. Um, but I used to cut a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of jazz catalogues. I used to cut, you know, for ind- jazz. So a lot of, there, in those days, there were lots of independent labels in the UK. So I was cutting a lot of jazz. I used to cut the Reprise catalogue, Frank Sinatra's label, stuff like that. And Oriel had a side business or a side label called Embassy, which sold these terrible records in Woolworths, these sort of like fake look-alike records. I remember Embassy. And I used to be... (laughs) One of the things I had to do was to try and make these awful sort of pale imitations sound like the originals, which was always impossible. But it sort of got me interested in popular music a bit. And then Oriel suddenly took on a new A&R man, a man called John Schroeder, who'd been responsible for Helen Shapiro, but we won't hold that against him. And um, later status quo, which we might hold against him. <laughs> but anyway, when he was at Oriel, he, um, he got uh, a year where they were allowed to release Motown. And this is the first time Motown records were ever issued in the UK and they really got me interested, there was just something about the way they hung together and they sounded and they, you know, and they're just so different to anything that 
yeah, was in the UK at the time. Just anyway, so I would stick there, and it wasn't it was the worst place I ever worked. You know, three years of purgatory working there, and the chief engineer, technical guy, and I wonder what on earth we could do. And in the end, his mother put up ten grand, and we thought, oh well, we'll start our own studio. <laughs> and that's and, and we ended up in Chelsea. It wasn't fashionable at the time. Uh, there was still a builder's merchants around the corner in King's Road and things like that, thank God, because you know, we had to do all that stuff ourselves. And we found this part of this building um, that was available. It worked because it was zoned for light industrial. And in those days, you couldn't, you know, there was no zoning for a recording studio. You know, so if you were, the, the light industrial zoning let us use it. And the other thing that was important is you had to sort of be on a, a loop almost within the west, particularly the west side of London and the north side, so that any other studio would be within maybe half an hour. Because in those days, you you know, you might do a jingle in the morning, that would be one-hour recording session, you might do a three-hour session in the afternoon, you might do a three-hour session in the evening, and, and you know... You know, a big star might get three hours to cut two two sides of a record, mm-hmm. and if you weren't, if you were starting out, you'd only get a half session, which was two hours, and you'd be expected to do it all in that time. And you know, so it's a very different you know, sort of way of starting. But that's so that's how we came to Chelsea. It wasn't, and of course, then it became a fashionable area, and that mm-hmm. was all. You know, was it? Had it still recently been a dairy when you? When you took the building? No, 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 no. It stopped being a dairy in, I think, at the sort of turn of the century, maybe around the time of the First World War. Yeah. But, you know, but they, when you say a dairy, the thing was they used to actually keep cows in it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just somewhere, it wasn't just somewhere where you milked them. I mean, they actually kept cows 365 years, that's 365 days of the year in it. Yeah. There's a big bull's head statue yeah. on the wall. Yeah. 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 And there are, there are two. There's there's the building we were in, and then there was another one. There's another one somewhere down King's Road, and the business went back to t- Wright's Dairy Farm. It was called, and of course we were leasing, you know, on a lease. And the reason we packed it in was it was still owned by two old ladies in Devon, the Wright sisters. I think they were, I think they were, you know, spinsters who inherited this all this lot. And uh, they decided they wanted to sell it. So, so we went to Barclays Bank and said, we'd like to borrow £184,000, please. And the property included the building we were in, which was three floors, although we took half of one out. Um, two shops, two flats above the shops. And uh, 184 grand, and Barclays wouldn't lend us the money in 19... 19- Oh, it's 1975, so I don't know. And I just got fed up with looking. And by this time, we diversified the business. You know, so, but those early years, John, I, I, I made a list to, to, to remind myself. Some of the things you were recording there, it was just like one that become classics since. But uh, mm, we were just lucky. Yeah. Pink Floyd's first single, Arnold Lane. Yeah, you produced that. No, I just engineered it. I engineered it. Joe produced it. I yeah. engineered it. And a few other bits and pieces. 
And I, Joe and I have had our, our law of mixing was if it's out of tune, put it straight down the middle. <laughs> if it's out of time, put it as far apart as the other one in the mix, in the stereo mix. Is that so? Are you, you're not just... Well, no, no, I'm not kidding you. No, that's how I used to do it. <laughs> and they were way after tune. Well, they weren't always, you know. I mean, if you're going to use one-string Chinese fiddles and God knows what else, you know, you, <laughs> you're, 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 going to get a, you're going to get a bit of a clash, aren't you, sooner or later? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was an incredible string band. And, and, and that's what, you know, I'm probably speaking out of turn now, but that, that was the springboard for Joe to start which season because he then decided he would start management and all the and so then we started doing this witch season stuff and then you know on the back of that we end up with other stuff like Jethro Tull which is nothing to do with, not that I did and, and you know we ended up with a lot of that sort of music um, we could talk all, all yeah, night, we've, but we've gone we've, well we've, over we've our, stopped, a lot yeah, of time but, so we just should bring it back to Nick Drake for one question because you produced this as well John Martin wrote Solid Air about Yes, Nick. Yeah. Was that well known at the time, or has it become known that that's what that song was about? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it is. Yes. Yeah. But it wasn't. I don't, I don't. I don't think John ever said about it until years later. I mean, it's years later, and probably alluded to it. But the the, the words do mean something about Nick Drake. You can, oh, gotcha. you can yeah. hear that. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it's a great song. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. As far as I know, there appears to be no sort of tape video footage or anything of Nick Drake. There is and no video footage, you're absolutely right. And that surprised me, considering a lot of the bands around that time went to Holland, went to Germany, did various shows, did promos. You'd have thought someone might have had a cine camera at Cambridge. It just, it, it's always something that's just amazed me. Well, I think the main reason is that, um, fortunately, well, I don't know whether it was maybe even fortunately for Nick, um, his whole life, artistic career, to some extent, was handled by Joe Boyd and Joe Boyd tried to cover all the bases himself which included touring agency management and so Nick never really got foisted by a record company you know in the way that a record company might have driven his his career in a way and he was a reluctant performer in some ways um but um I suppose, I mean, people, people didn't do much videoing in those days. The, I thought I'd remembered him actually doing one appearance on BBC Two on a thing called Late Night Lineup, but nobody has ever been able to trace any anything in the BBC archives of him ever receiving any money for anything on television. So, so that's why. I think. Thanks, John. Cheers. <laughs> Somebody in this corner, I've got Mr. Buckles. Oh, let's uh, go to you first. Hi. Yeah, it's a bit... It's, it's off the musical track, but it's on the al album. 
in terms of the artwork on the album, it's a bit crazy. Do you, what, have you got any insight or yes. sort of knowledge about yeah, yeah. that? Uh, yes, Nick was a fan of Magritte, and that's where the that, that that's where the idea came from. Uh, you alluded to um, him being a fantastic musician and being having great knowledge of musical scores and etc. and played various instruments. Yeah. But what he's known for more than anything else is playing guitar. Yeah. And how do you rate him against everybody else as a guitarist? Well, he's unique. Yeah. End of story. I mean, there's. You know... <laughs> That's the end of it. Yeah. The, the interesting thing when you listen to Pink Moon is that, I, if you think about it, really, what he is, he's covering all the bases he wants to cover in a record, and that's it. You know, I mean, it's not. I, when you listen to the record now, it will be very difficult to think how you you would even started to augment anything and why you would have even bothered. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, and it's, I think it was part of his character and people were asking earlier about, you know, about, about him and his, um, <laughs> his attitude. I mean, I think, you know, the thing about Pink Moon is he controlled everything the way he wanted it to and that's why the, the songs are probably his brief as they are and then and when you listen to the guitar parts and some of those songs i mean you know normally you know sing a songwriter now would like strum away and you know do a bit but they would never have got to the complexity that some of this stuff is. no it's amazing thank you Ada, hey, hey, you don't ask that question before please yeah yeah we were speaking briefly just about yeah the for me, this album, it's, it's crying out for the, um, the Robert Kirby treatment. It's but it's, but it's not. <laughs> no, that's no. It. I, well, maybe not. Well, that, that's, that, but, yeah, because... but what did the record company think of that? I mean, he decided it was completed. Yeah. Were, well, they, he did, were he, they totally happy well, with that? I don't know what they really thought. I never, <laughs> I never had much contact with them. Most of, the re- most of my recording career... I had very little contact with the recording company. I had a great deal of contact with the artists and hopefully we got what the artists wanted and, quite honestly, I felt stuffed the record company. Okay. I'm, I'm a bit, you know... <laughs> and But Nick was very lucky because he was with Island Records and Island was a company which respected its artists and looked after its artists. And Chris Blackwell, when... Interestingly enough, when Chris Blackwell took over Joe Boyd's production company, which and he'd been releasing uh, Island Records, uh, or Island Records had been releasing all Joe's productions, uh, Blackwell made an undertaking that he would never let Nick Drake off the catalogue. And, um, and so... I don't think they knew how... I mean, nobody knew how to support him. I think that was the big problem. They didn't know quite how to deal with it. There's a a bizarre story, John, that probably most people have heard in here, but when he he delivered his tapes to Island Records for this third album, and he just left them without telling anybody... Absolute tosh. (laughs) 
the, the idea that I'm going to give the artist the master tapes to an album that I'm going to supervise the, you know, the final mastering of is just nonsense. No, what he would have done, he would have turned up with a, you know, seven and a half or fifteen ips tape, and he'd left it at reception. Presumably, you know, I don't know for, I don't know if Richard Williams was A and R then, or it was um, uh, Muff Winwood. I can't remember. Uh, I, th- I think, I, I mean, certainly for a long time, time, Chris Blackall got Nick Drake, but I don't think some of the people in Ireland did. You know, but Chris always did. Sarah, all the way from Preston. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was just wondering if uh, Nick ever said what he thought about Pink Moon. Was he satisfied with it? Well, I think he was satisfied with it, otherwise he would have kept doing it, if you see what I mean. Um, but Nick never, ever sat back and said, oh, that's great, I think that's terrific, or about anything, ever. You know. uh, and any, any take of any performance of any, you know, I mean, he just said yes or no. <laughs> that was, that, Fred, was a perfectionist. That, that, and that was it, so... But I don't think... I mean, if he hadn't have been happy with anything... I mean, you know, certainly we did... You know, most of the stuff, we probably did one or two, maybe three takes of a song. You know, three at the most, probably. And we'd listen to them, and if he was happy and I hadn't heard anything that I didn't like, then we'd, that would be it. And then... And when it came to doing the order of, for the album... So I, I guess at that point he would have not been one to put it into order, you know, running order. He got, you know, one or two ideas, I had one or two ideas, and in those days you had to make each side roughly the same length because of cassette tapes. You know, because if you didn't make them roughly the same length, the cassette tape would flip, flip over in the car halfway through a song to the other side. So we used to cut up... You put each title, write it on a piece of paper, and you cut up the length of the paper in proportion to the song. <laughs> and then you would like, you could sit with it like the two sides, and you'd swap it all around. And that, you know, and, you know, and, and certainly the last title would have, would have had that nailed because just because of the way the song is, and probably might not. I can't remember. I mean, I don't remember how I remember, but I do remember we just sat there and flicked around with it. So, so I guess he, you know, he was as happy as that. As, and in some ways he might have been more happy, as I say, because he... There's no doubt about it. When you listen to the parts he's playing, and I mean, he's, he's in control of the whole thing, and it is just him. And I think, much as people think he probably didn't have an ego, he did. And that's... Uh, was his ego artistic based, or was his ego personality? I don't, I don't know what you mean. Oh, I, well, I, no, I think it was, you know, yeah, artistic based. I mean, I, I think he thought, you know, I think he thought, you know, I, I, I'm good at this, and people should realise it. Yeah. I've read, I've read pieces about him. Yeah. That, that, I mean, but I don't, I don't think it wasn't, been it, written yeah, about yeah, him yeah, it wasn't, wasn't anything that was for the, to the fore of his personality. <clears> but I certainly mm. think he thought thought that way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, everything that's been written about Nick Drake has been written in retrospect. The, the, you mentioned earlier on the article with Jerry Gilbert in Sounds, it was. Yeah. It's the only contemporary article that were ever written about him. 
everything else was it the, i didn't know yeah. it was the only one but the i do remember one. the i do remember it yeah. and um as i say and I, and I i didn't know about it until about four or five years ago when somebody said oh well he always wants you to do it because you know? mm. I, I, I thought you know you get all these things well maybe it would have been better if you hadn't done it and joe boyd was still going and blah, 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 and all that sort of thing but you know but uh, he wouldn't have made the record. I don't think he'd have made the record if he hadn't done it under his own terms, and that, 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 those were his terms. Mm. Hi. Hi. Um, first, I'm going to d completely disagree with this gentleman. Not, not <laughs> personal, but I, I, I love the, the pared downness of this album, and I really wish a lot more people would actually make records where you just get the rawness of their talent rather than kind of it being sort of washed over by. A lot of background. Anyway, that, that's not really my question. But my question is: uh, on this record, you both produced and engineered it. Uh, as somebody who's never been involved in anything to do with the studio, can you define what separates those two roles, and maybe what <coughs> maybe what overlaps them? I find it very difficult. I mean, there, there are all sorts of different producers. I mean, you know, there are producers who want to be involved in the writing of the material. There are producers who, um, you know, want to be 100% involved in the sound and production, you know, that element of the production. There are producers who are good at choosing or putting great little, you know, combinations together. Um, and there are producers who just sit on the artist and... It's more the producer's record than the artist's record. They're using the artist as a tool, almost. Um, I'm not very good in most of those roles. <laughs> I, um, I got into producing in a strange way, actually. I mean, really through working with Joe and being a producer with attitude, uh, being an engineer with attitude, <laughs> you know, and we had this, I don't know, you know, and still have, funnily enough, I mean, it's not that long ago since I last worked with them. I've had, always had a, a sort of, a, a rela you know, working relationship where the boundaries have crossed between engineer and, and uh, producer. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the production facility, you know, functions that I can fulfil are mainly as a facilitator. You know, I, I can put you know, I can put projects together, I can hopefully choose the right musicians for something and hopefully get to achieve what the artist wants. But I wouldn't, you know, but I'm not into writing, I'm not into particularly... Um, I'm into evaluating, you know, and you're into evaluating performance too. If, in my role, you know, if I think somebody can do something better, I would tell them, or, you know, if something screws up, but, you know. Um, and as an engineer, well, you know, just if you know what you're doing, you just capture what's going on and make it work. Um, but that's but that function has changed in the last ten years a lot because very few people now go into a studio and record more than one thing at a time. And then when they do record one thing at a time, before you know where you are, they're replacing the drum parts with samples and. I, you know, and there's all this, you know, auto-tuning and you know, quantizing and, and all stuff I don't understand anything about. 
So I don't work that much in that domain. You are a bit of a technophobe, though, uh, John, because when I went to pick you up tonight, you, you were um, you were slightly delayed in the guest house because you were getting your electric <laughs> yeah, brush to, to charge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, about, that's about it. Yeah. If, any, if anybody's interested in listening to something of, of, of a producer's work where he makes it sound absolutely beautiful... One of Norma Waterson's latter-day albums, the, the very thought of you was, you yeah. produced that. Oh, that was, that was yeah, she was and lovely to work with. It's a stunningly it beautiful record, um, and you can hear the production values all, all, all over. You, did you work on that, Clive? You didn't work on no, that. No, no, he's got a song on it. Huh? One of the songs yeah, of yours yeah. is on it, yeah. Yeah, but the interesting thing about that record was, I mean, we... Better make in Los Angeles because Norma wanted to use Richard Thompson and he wouldn't move out of LA. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we was like, God, a real scra- scrapey budget. And we, we turn up and Martin and Norma, Richard Thompson, Danny Thompson, who just had a hard, heart bite, not a heart bite, but a new heart valve. Um, we weren't sure whether he'd be okay or not. So we took Pat Donaldson down as well. And, and a great keyboard player called Terry Barawaki, Canadian, who I'd worked with. And, I mean, we were in the studio for a week, and it, it actually... That album is one of the most joyful weeks I've ever had in the studio. It, yeah. it was incredible. I mean, it was all... Everybody could play, so, you know, it was just easy to... It was easy work for me. Norma wouldn't even listen to a playback. She'd say, oh, if you think it's all right, we'll do another one. Amazing. And... Uh, and they're singing on it. He's out and, of and, and it was just... And, and, of course, Richard Thompson, Martin and Danny Thompson, they're all ra- great raconteurs. So there was a laugh from, you know, like, it's nothing but sort of jokes, stories for, for you know, ten hours a day. It was, it, no, it was a joy to make the record. D- Danny Thompson came to the, to the cat club when it were held in my shed when Ian and I... Uh, Founded and there were eight there were eight people and Danny Thompson this brilliant double bass player it's legendary and he came with he wouldn't listen to, he couldn't listen to an album he came with a, a suitcase this big and it was just full of albums that he's worked on and they were all jammed in and creased and and he just played these selected tracks blah blah blah. And that is, if you go on the Cat Club Facebook page uh, or go on to YouTube, that interview is, is, on, on, is available for you to watch. Um, can I ask a question, please? Mm. Um, when Volkswagen picked up for yeah. the ad, yeah. did you know about this beforehand? No, so I, did, I didn't. I, in fact, I'd, I'd, I'm not even sure I was making... I was not even sure I was back in... Making records at that point was it ninety six? No, it's two thousand and no, it's before. Was it? Well, was before it, when, when was it? Ninety something. Was it ninety six? Sorry. Yeah, if it was ninety six. Yeah. I probably was not. Um, I probably wasn't even doing records. Yeah, because I stopped it. Because of course, years. That, that I suppose just resurrected his his career, didn't it? That that. Well, you, I don't know if you have a career well, after you've been dead for God knows how long, but I don't know if it's... <laughs> Retrospectively. But uh, I, I, find it, I do find it extraordinary that um, a TV commercial in America for an open-top car 
can suddenly turn everybody onto it, onto Nick's yeah. work. And because within, I don't know, I think within about 12 weeks or so, I mean, it's up on the billboard charts. It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And did, I don't know if it predates the Pink Moon time, but they were certainly using Nick's music in films. Uh, the two tracks used in um, the Royal Tannenbaums. Yeah. Um, and I know that Anston and Brad Pitt was it Anston who married Brad Pitt? Yeah. yeah they, 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 have, they were playing stuff at the Nick two two Nick tracks at their wedding. So oh. do, do you know how, do you know how many albums the three albums sold, John? Do you have you any idea? Uh, well, I only know says Pink Moon because I'm on points, but. Um, <laughs> I do know the interesting thing is that Pink Moon out, outsells the other albums at something like 20 to 1. Now? No, well, certainly since, yeah, still, I think, yeah. But at the time, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, at the that. time? I think when they were issued, they were, you'd have been lucky to get 5,000 on, on the first two, you know, two, I mean, 10,000 between them, I think, would have been more than that, if mm. that. And Pink Moon? I don't know, mm. tell you the truth. Probably, been probably zilch, you know. Huh? I mean, I, after we'd done Pink Moon, I thought, you know, Ireland are just going to freak and then, you know, <laughs> give me a hard time. Never heard a word and they put it out, so I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, great round of applause for these two, please.